0: Epic stories and epic characters are easy to tie myself to, to relate to, but sometimes the stories of the women in the Bible can be unrelatable or, I don't know, just not as epic. But the truth is, is their stories are my stories too. And not just for a time past, but for a time now. Their failures are my failures. They're good bad it all ends up kind of being beautiful it's a greater story and we're all part of it all of it the good the bad and the beautiful hey welcome glad that you're here before we jump in have a um, have a cute story to tell you so um, Spoiling our grandkids is like one of the things that Chris and I really enjoy doing right now. And I got a uh, FaceTime call from Ezra at, who um, was at Lowe's or he was at um, Home Depot. I'm not sure which one he drove himself to. He was just hanging out over there. <laughs> he was there with his mom and dad, Ezra's too. And um, so he FaceTimes me. And believe it or not, for those of you that have grandkids, you know how good they are using technology. There's stuff I can't do that that kid, I'm like, here, show me that real quick. So he, <laughs> he, he got on the phone, and uh, he says, Papa, look at this. And he turned the phone, and there was this giant blow-up mechanism. Um, it's Santa holding a candy cane with two uh, gingerbread men going in a circle making cookies, and it's for the lawn, and he goes, hey, would you buy this for me? <laughs> um, of course, I said, hey, put your mother on the phone. As uh, Let me talk to her real quick. So, so they showed me the picture of this thing. And I'm like, uh, he was just so excited. So I said, get it. It looked to me like it was maybe about three feet, three and a half feet tall when I see it on their lawn. It's over 10 feet tall. <laughs> and he is out there running around that thing and dancing and having such a good time. And kids and Christmas, man. What a, what a wonderful thing. Um, hey, uh, if you got your notes, want we'll to look at them real quick. Uh, we just mentioned that uh, our 2018 Israel trip is coming up. If you have a heart and you want to go, we'll have the informational meeting um, the, uh, the first Saturday there in December. And we'd love for you To be a part of that, I do need to say this real quick, though. Uh, We're limited this year. Uh, So 2018, this is Israel's uh, 70th birthday. They've had a long period of peace, and it's gone crazy over there. I can only get 35 hotel rooms uh, total, which means 70 people. And if you back out, Chris and I and the leadership and the people that have already pre-registered, I've got 50 seats for sale. That's it. So the first 50 is the only way that I can do it. So I, I don't know how else to say that. I don't mean to make it sound like, you know, you hurry up and do it. I'm just literally saying we have 50 seats and that's it. So the first 50 will be it. Um, I won't do like, uh, hey, pastor, can we slip you money tonight? No, don't want <laughs> to do that. We'll do it at the meeting. But if you're interested in going, we'd love to have you go. But just be aware, it is, um, it is limited on the number of people that we can bring. If you go to Israel with us, One of the things we talk about when we're on the trip is a guy named Josephus. And for those of you who know history, uh, Josephus was a Jewish historian. Let me give you a little bit of background because it connects to this story real quick. He was a Jewish general who, uh, during the times of Christ, uh, was part of a revolt that was led against Rome. And he got trapped in a cave with 40 other people, with the entire Roman army coming against them. And they decided, rather than to fall in the hands of the Romans that uh, they would draw lots and they would do away with themselves down to the last guy. And the last guy was the general because they assumed, because he was a general, he would do the honorable thing and dispatch himself. So it began with a lottery system, and uh, the first one had to allow the next one to kill him and so forth and so on. And it got down to uh, the last guy, which is Josephus, and he decided to surrender rather than to kill himself. But it just so happens that he becomes one of the greatest historians because not only did he write about all the stuff that went on with Israel, outside of the Bible, Josephus is the only person who was an eyewitness to Jesus. And he actually writes about what Jesus looked like and who Jesus was. And outside of the Bible, it's the only written thing that we have uh, in history that talks about Jesus. It's the proof of Jesus outside of the Bible. So here's the question when we're there that people ask. Was the guy a traitor to his nation or was he a historian to be honored because of what he did? And it kind of is left to the person's imagination. Who is he? A traitor? Or is he somebody that God used in order to do something really great? Uh, if you know history, he actually wrote a whole lot. And uh, he, he, he was a tremendous historian. Here's where it connects. Katie taught last weekend, did a great job for me. Um, do you appreciate yeah. hearing Okay, Yeah, she just, just did a great job. Um, but Katie mentioned, hey, we're doing a series called The Good, the Bad, and the Beautiful, and that no one's anxious to do the bad women of the Bible. And she mentioned specifically Delilah. So guess what my subject's about this week? It's Delilah, the temptress of Samson. And um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about Delilah, but I'm going to present it in that light right there. Um, Delilah, in one point of view, was a bad woman. But if you look at it for what the Bible says... And you look at it from her point of view, all she was doing was just living her life when this guy named Samson came along and messed with her. We automatically jump on Samson's side because Samson was God's man. But in this case, Samson wasn't the greatest of people. Can I say it one more time? Samson wasn't the greatest. One of the the stories about Samson, in two verses it says this. He walked into Gaza, saw a prostitute, and went into her. I mean, that's not a man of restraint right there. That's kind of like, hey, there she is. Boom, Now off he goes into the, yeah. So it's a, he's not the, the greatest hero um, that you would ever, ever look at. And if you take it in the whole of the story between these two people, um, maybe I could just show you something that you'll have to decide tonight. Uh, was she a traitor, or is there another side of the story? So her story takes place in the book of Judges. Chapter 16 is verses 4 to 22. I'm going to read it to you real quick, and then I'll teach. So let's begin. Uh, Sometime later, uh, Samson fell in love with a woman. Remember that part right there, and this is what's important with it. It doesn't say that she returned the love to him. So notice the words on this, because it's really important. And the Bible, remember, is a very carefully edited text. The Holy Spirit only has in it exactly what he wants us to see. It doesn't take pages and pages to tell a story. It does it in just a few words. So sometime later, Samson fell in love with a woman named Delilah who lived in the valley of Sorek. The rulers of the Philistines went to her and said, so she is living amongst the Philistines. Is she a Philistine? We don't know. She's one of two things. She's an Israeli prostitute or she's a Philistine. here's why we know this. A Jew wouldn't be living with the Philistines. And the only reason a Jew would be living with the Philistines is if the Israelis had kicked her out of their village. And the only reason they would have kicked her out is if she was a prostitute. So she's either a Philistine or she's a prostitute. But either way, she's living in difficult circumstances. Samson's not where he's supposed to be. So they meet each other at a really inopportune time. So um, back that back up real quick. You went, you went faster than I wanted to go. Sometime later, Samson fell in love with a woman named Delilah who lived in the Valley of Surak. The rulers of the Philistines went to her and said to her, uh, entice Samson to tell you what makes him so strong and how he can be overpowered and tied up securely. And then each of us will give you 1,100 pieces of silver. Real quickly, the equivalent is in the millions of dollars. Wow. Not thousands, Millions. So they're offering this woman the opportunity, either she's a prostitute or she's a Philistine, but either way, she's really poor. She is not looked upon in any way that's good in life, and they're offering her the opportunity to be financially secure. That changes a lot of people's thoughts about how they live life suddenly, yes or no. Now, you can act like it doesn't, but it does have an influence. So they're offering her millions of dollars. Sorry, go to the next one. Uh, So Delilah said to Samson, uh, please tell me what makes you so strong and what it would take to tie you up securely. This is the first time. Samson replied, if I were tied up with seven new bowstrings that have not yet been dried, so they're still wet, I would become as weak as anyone else. So the Philistine rulers brought Delilah seven new bowstrings, and she tied Samson up with them. She had hidden some men in one of the inner rooms of her house, and she cried out, Samson, the Philistines have come to capture you. Samson jumped up and snapped the bowstrings, as a piece of string snaps when it's burned by fire. So the secret of his strength was not discovered. Afterward, twice now, Delilah said to him, uh, you've been making fun of me and telling me lies. Now please tell me how you can be tied up securely. Samson replied, if I were tied up with brand new ropes, not just white ones, but brand new, they've never been used on anything, I would become as weak as anyone else. So Delilah took new ropes and tied him up with them. The men were hiding in the inner room as before, and again, Delilah cried out, Samson, the Philistines have come to capture you. But again, Samson snapped the ropes uh, from his arms and like they were thread. And Delilah said, "Uh, you've been making fun of me, telling me lies. Now tell me how you can be tied up securely. Third time, let's just stop here for a second. Does anybody else find any humor in this story at all? Are you asking yourself, how can this be? What is wrong with this guy? So they say, love makes you blind. Yes or no? In this case, it makes you stupid also. All right, so (laughs) if you were to weave the seven braids of my hair, so this guy's got like dreads. If you were to weave the seven braids of my hair, look at it, into the fabric of your loom and tighten it with the loom shuttle, I would become as weak as anyone else. So while he slept, Delilah wove the seven braids of his hair into the fabric, the, the rug that she's making. Then she tightened it with the loom shuttle Uh, Again, she cried out third time, Samson, the Philistines have come to capture you. But Samson woke up, pulled back the loom shuttle, yanked his hair away from the loom and the fabric, destroyed it all, and then Delilah pouted. Now, who do you think should be pouting at this point? So Delilah pouts, how can you tell me? Say it with me. I love you. She never says, I love you. She plays on his affection for her. How can you tell me I love you when you don't share your secrets with me? You've made fun of me three times now, and you still haven't told me what makes you so strong. And then she does what she must have done very well. She tormented him with her nagging day after day until he was sick to death of it. Finally, fourth time, Samson shared his secret with her. My hair has never been cut. For I was dedicated to God as a Nazarite from my birth. I'll tell you what that is in just a second. Uh, If my head were shaved, however, my strength would leave me and I would become as weak as anyone else. Delilah realized he had finally told her the truth. So she sent for the Philistine rulers. Come back one more time, fourth time. She said, for he has finally told me his secret. So the Philistine rulers returned with the money in their hands this time. Delilah lulled Samson to sleep with his head in her lap. So they must have been in a moment of intimacy. And then she called in a man to shave off the seven locks of his hair. In this way, she began to bring him down. And his strength left him. Then she cried out, Samson, the Philistines have come to capture you. Fourth time. When he woke up, here's what he thought to himself. I will do as before, and I will just simply shake myself free. But he didn't realize that the Lord had left him. I say it one more time. He didn't realize the Lord had left him. So the Philistines captured him, gouged out his eyes. They took him to Gaza where he was bound with bronze chains and uh, forced to grind grain in the prison that he was kept. But before long, his hair began to, back and began to grow back. And if you know the rest of the story, at some point after his hair grows back, he asks God for one more opportunity uh, to avenge what's been done to him. And he pushes the pillars out, kills several thousand Philistines, but it also costs him his own death. The story's remarkable. Samson was an incredible individual. If you grew up in church and you ever saw any of the drawings that they did, you might have colored them or your kids bring them home, they always picture him as a strong man. But he was not a strong man. The Bible says the Spirit of God would come upon him. He was very normal looking. He would look like you or he would look like me. Probably me. But the Spirit of God would come upon him. (laughs) And he would just be um, incredibly strong when God would move on him. And that's why it says that he got up the fourth time just like every other time and thought to himself, hey, I'll just do what I always did. But the thing that he thought he controlled now controlled him. And it meant the end for him. So let me, um, let me do this. When I was studying, I never saw this before. Um, and I've done this, uh, pastored for more than 30 years. I would never saw this before. You know, in Hebrew, names have meaning. When parents name children, they named them according to what they hoped would be their future. His name means "day." Her name means "night." If there were ever two opposites that had never been together, it's this couple right here. Can I give you a quick recipe for a disastrous relationship? It's not the crux of the message, but I just threw it in because I saw this and I thought, man, um, here's what happened. I had a meet and greet this last Wednesday at Lakewood Campus, and I met this couple. Uh, I began this series of messages talking about Abigail, for those who remember. And I got to the end of the story about Abigail. and Here's what I said. If you find an Abigail in your life and she's not married, marry her. Mm-hmm. And this guy walks up to me with his fiance and said, I heard your message, pastor. Yeah. And he said, we got engaged that night. Wow. It's a smart man. All right, so if you're sitting here with somebody and it ain't going good, (laughs) I'm serious right now, listen to me. Because the time to do something about it is before. Does anybody ever teach that? So listen to me right now. Let me give you just quickly a recipe for a disaster in a relationship. The first one just simply is if you got a pen or pencil or using the online version. Uh, He loved her, but she didn't love him. He loved her, but she didn't love him. When love's not returned, quit trying. At some point, man, you've got to be honest, you've got to be realistic, and you've got to look at it for what it is. Love is always based on two people who mutually say to each other, I love you, I'm committed to you. You cannot have a marriage with one person trying and the other one not caring. You can't. Marriage is always based on two people in agreement. You have to wake up every day with the idea, hey, I want to do this. If one changes their mind, the other one can't do anything about it. That's a terrible place to be in after you're married. But if you know it ahead of time, dude, open your eyes, man. Don't ever ignore things like that. One of the worst counseling sessions I ever got myself into in my life. This guy was really big, like 6'5", six, 6'6". Like 245 or 50 pounds. This guy, I mean, he was a big man. And, of course, he marries this woman that's about 4 foot nothing and about 90 pounds. They were the odd couple walking in with each other. They sat down. She is crying the entire time. She's telling me how abusive this guy is. And he just sits there with his arms folded, glaring at me. I'm afraid to look at him. So I'm kind of looking at her like, please don't. And she's just going awful and just... He, he doesn't love me. He abuses me. He's Just it's, imagine the worst possible scenario. And so I look at him and the only thing I can even think to muster is before I launch into this, I'm going to ask this guy if he'll do whatever it takes to save his marriage. I need to know that before I give any other breath to this thing. So I just look at him. I just simply say, hey, listen, this is a, a difficult situation. But it's not impossible. God can do anything. And all I want to know from you is, will you do whatever it takes to save your marriage? And the guy looks at her. He looks at me. And he said, I don't love her. No. And he got up and left. Gosh, she was devastated. Can you imagine how awkward that conversation was? What do you say to comfort somebody? What do you do? It was unfixable. They went their separate ways. Long story short, though, he was like that before they got married. She was doing everything she could to try to hold on to him, thinking that he'll change at some point. Can I just be your pastor for a second? If it's unreturned, open your eyes. My name's John. It's all okay. Okay, let's go to two, because I can see that one over real, real big. <laughs> two, let me give you two. All right. Uh, he needs her. You agree from the story? He needs her. But she needs money. He needs her, but she needs money. And in any relationship, man, it's a recipe for disaster. When the person isn't in it for you, they're in it for the stuff. Some people marry for money. Some people marry for status. Some people marry for position. Some people marry to get out of trouble. Some people marry to get away from stuff. Some people marry for all of the wrong reasons. It doesn't matter really what the reasons are. Here's the one right reason. You get married because you love each other. And how do you know you love each other? It's real simple. Here's what the Bible says. God loves so much that he... Man, when you want to give to somebody, not get from somebody, that's love. When you want to give your life, when you want to serve them. When people come to me, Pastor, marry us. Why? Why should I do that? When I was young, I just did it because people asked me, and I thought, wow, it's, they, they love me. And then I realized they just need a pastor to marry them. That's what they need. Why should I marry you? And you get the funniest answer. Oh, because I feel. What? I just feel. That same conversation switches itself not that long later for some. I feel. What? I don't know, but I feel, trust me. <laughs> Feeling is not it. Man, it's a commitment to give. A recipe for disaster is a person who's in it for anything else but to love. Uh, here's the weirdest one. And When I read this story, it just blows my mind. I, I don't, how many times have I read it? How many times? Uh, did, I, this, he never saw it coming, yes or no. I, that one, it just it blows my mind. The first time, what's the, uh, fool me once, shame on you. But Fool me twice, shame on, fool me three times. You'll end up in the Bible, fool me four times. <laughs> fool me a fourth time. And what, you're a proverb. Yes or no? There, what is, what, what's left on the fourth time? What is there to say after four, how can how in your mind can you even justify the first three times she says the Philistines are upon you? He never even asked, Hey, where'd they come from? <laughs> Maybe the first time they snuck in the house, but the second time, it's like, are they related to you? Are they coming for things? What is up with this situation? Third time is crazy. The fourth time, you're just like, you're blind. Your sin will blind you. Listen to me. When you begin to pray about the stuff that God's already said no to, you've already opened yourself up to be deceived. So let me tell you about Samson real quickly and being a Nazarite. There were three things that he was supposed to do his entire life. The first one, never cut his hair, and he never did. Don't know how long it was, but it must have been long, and he had to braid it in order to, if he's in his 20s or 30s at this point, this guy's got long hair, yes or no? So he never cut his hair. Here's the second thing. He can't drink wine or touch any product made from the vine. And all through the book of Judges, when it talks about Samson, all through every chapter, here's what it says. You'll find Samson hanging out by the vineyards in Timnath. He's already hanging out down by where they make the wine and grow the grapes. Whether he's drinking it or not, I don't know. There's nothing wrong with drinking it, but he's not supposed to. He's made a vow before God, yes or no? So he's hanging out by things he's not supposed to be doing. And then the third vow of a Nazarite you can't touch a dead body. And one of the stories we read about Samson right before this, Samson finds the carcass of a dead lion and bees had made a hive in it. And he's famished. So he scoops in the lion to get the honey. He already violated at least twice that we know of his vow before the Lord. Here's what I'm saying to you. This guy is already playing with fire in his life. He's not an innocent character when it comes to Delilah. He's already been with prostitutes. He's already putting his vow on the edge. If he's not crossed the line, he's already flirting with the line every day. When you begin to live your life that way, you're setting yourself up to be deceived. He's deceived in this situation. This didn't happen in a day. This happened years before he ever got to this place right here. His problem is he thinks... He can overcome these things. He thinks he's in control. What started out as a hobby becomes a habit. What you think you control and choose begins to own you and dictate to you. What you think you can pick up and put down begins to now not let go of you. Samson's not some unique character in life. Samson was as human as the rest of us. And when you begin, bro, when you begin to pray about things you know are wrong, you've already opened yourself up to be lied to by the devil. So that's just a little twist in the story. And I just throw that out because maybe somebody's listening and maybe I can help you out right now. Maybe you're sitting there mad at me thinking, why would he say something about my relationship like that? Because I love you, I'm your pastor. And I'd much, listen, it's much cheaper to deal with it now than it is to get a divorce later. Yeah. Okay. Let's go on. Let me give you four things about this story that just make me go hum. Like, uh, I just can't believe this. Here's the first one Uh, Samson's strong, but this woman's stronger. Here's what's amazing to me in this story. People always think brute strength accomplishes everything. Physical strength is it. The truth of the matter is moral character is always stronger than brute strength. This woman, I don't care how you look at her life and what you think about her, something about this woman is incredibly strong. She wasn't moved. She never deviated. She never changed her tune. She never fooled this guy. She was who she was from the very beginning. She started out tricking him. She kept going with tricking him, and she ended up tricking him. The truth of the matter is he's a he-man, he's got a she-weakness, and this woman is morally stronger than he is, yes or no? I just think, man, when you read this story, you got to read it through the eyes that it's actually portraying. It's easy to jump on Samson's side because Samson is God's guy, but the truth of the matter is Samson, man, is doing his own thing a long time before we ever get to this. How about this? Delilah gets the bad reputation in the story, but the real problem is Samson. He's the problem. He's the one doing this. He's not supposed to, as a Hebrew, he's not supposed to intermarry. He's not supposed to find his relationships outside of what God has commanded. And he's with a woman that he's not supposed to be with from the very beginning. We read this story in Delilah. You ask people in the world who have never heard the Bible but have heard her name and connected it, ask them, who's the good one, Samson or Delilah? Sam. In this case, I'm telling you, she gets the bad rep, but Samson's the problem. As a believer, man, as a person of God, there's a responsibility, and this guy is where the real problem is. How about this? This is probably the saddest scripture in the whole Bible. God left Samson, and Samson didn't even know it. Just look at me real quick. Let me ask you this question. If God left you, would you know it? If the Holy Spirit was removed from your life today, would you know the difference? How much does your life depend on hearing from God, on walking with God, on sensing God, on being drawn by God? How much do you know if God is with you? It's got to be the saddest scripture in the Bible that this guy doesn't even know that God's not with him anymore. Maybe the reverse of that is true. How do you know God is with you? How do you know he's in your life, man? Do you you sense him? Does he talk to you? Do you hear him? Jesus said, my sheep know my voice, and the voice of a stranger they won't follow. I don't mean it harsh right now. I'm just asking a question. If God were to leave, would you know? So I would hope that everything you do is built around a relationship with Christ, man, that the Holy Spirit is speaking to you and talking to you and living in you and drawing you every day. I pray that when you wake up in the morning, you recognize His presence. And I pray when you go to work, you sense His presence. I pray when it's a bad day, God gets you through that. I pray when it's a great day, you don't feel like it was just you. I pray when you lay it down at nighttime, you hear God's voice and you sense His presence. My question just simply is, if the Holy Spirit were withdrawn would you know the difference? Because somehow, this guy who experienced God in such a powerful way suddenly is left to ask the question, Hey, man, where did God go? Here, maybe, though, is the most remarkable thing about this whole story. It's crazy. Um, so, he, he messes up big time in this story. He loses his call. He loses his position, and it ultimately costs him his life. But here, here's, here's the greatest thing about this story this is the thing that always, always blows my mind. All the way into the New Testament, the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, is called the Hall of Faith. And the people written in Hebrews 11 make it into heaven. They're the ones that we're supposed to admire, that we're supposed to look at, that we're supposed to realize that's, that's, that's a godly person right there. Man, they had great faith. Hebrews chapter 11. Look at this scripture right here of, of, of all the things we talked about. Uh, Paul writes these words. How much more? do I need to say, and he's talking about all of the people who have come before us who have done remarkable things. It would take too long to recount the stories of faith of Gideon, Barak. Who's the next one? One more time. Jephthah, David, Samuel, and all the prophets. Look at me real quick. The guy's a mess up. But when God writes his obituary, he somehow ignores all of the stuff that he did wrong and writes, he's one of mine and he's in heaven. Here's the best news I got for you. You can be a Samson, but when God writes your obituary, guess what? He's merciful. He forgives, and he restores, and he puts your life back together. And I love that about God. Somehow, when God writes down the details, he overlooks all the stuff. Why is it in the Bible then? Because the Bible's not trying to sell you something. It's not trying to make up a story or to make people seem like they're more than what they really are. All of the warts and the gray hairs and the wrinkles are in there because it talks about human need. But when God gets done with us, he writes our name in the hall of faith. I love that. I love the end of the story. He takes somebody who had totally messed up, who had totally, (laughs) totally just, I mean, the story's not good. And then when God writes the end of it, it's like... Here's a guy you should admire. Here's a guy that had faith. Here's a guy that I'm with right now. What a powerful idea. When God writes the obituary, he writes down the thing that he remembers us for and somehow takes out the stuff that we messed up with. I write the story this weekend for this. It's a warning. Normally when I preach, I don't warn. Normally when I preach, I'm always trying to encourage But the longer I live, the more I know that Samson didn't live then. Samson lives today. Churches are full of Samsons and full of people who think, I got it all under control. And I can walk really close to the line and I can do the stuff and I can wake up like I always did before and it's going to be just fine. And I'm going to tell you something, man. His life, this story is in the Bible because it's a warning to us. That's not the way to live life. It's not, and it's not a threat, and it's not a, like, hey, if you're close to the line, it's about to end. That's not the way that it works, but his life is a warning to all of us, that people who love God very much and have a call in their life, when you're doing the stuff that you know you're not supposed to, in your mind, you fool yourself. You think it's going to be Okay. The first thing that happens is you become blind and the second thing that happens is the thing you think you control begins to control you and you don't even know it. And when you lose your strength and the devil grabs hold of you, look at me real quick. God writes the end of the story so it's not about heaven and hell but your life can end up losing everything in this earth and that's not what God wants for you. And so I stand before you, man, boldly saying, boldly, where's your life at? What's going on inside? What things do you know you're getting close to the edge on? It's the mercy of God that calls us back from the edge. It's not the judgment of God. It's the mercy of God. That stops us in our tracks and says, Hey, wake up, open your eyes. Seeing is not a curse, it's a blessing. God's correction, listen, is God's grace in your life. Consequences, not a person in this room who loves consequences. I promise God always yells before consequences. Whether you know it or not, God's yelling right now. Wake up. Wake up. We make a vow to God. I belong to you. You belong to me. Walk in that vow, man. Walk in that vow. It's Jesus. I'm not exactly sure how the Holy Spirit needs to pull on us right now. The problem with a message like this is that um, when we're doing our own thing, messages like this are inconvenient. They bother us. They offend us. They poke at us. They confront us. They push us. And then it's so easy to be angry at the message and not realize why the message is affecting us. The Bible says it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. The kindness of God. It's not His judgment. It's not anger. God's not vindictive. God's not full of wrath. All of those things were satisfied with Jesus on the cross. God loves you, cares for you, and your well being is on his mind more than it's on yours. The whole reason this story is in the Bible is because Samson walks amongst us today. People that love God and start out so strong and so right. And live their lives with such devotion and direction, man. It's so easy to get off track. It's so easy to find ourselves doing things today that we would have never done five years ago. And because God's mercy doesn't suddenly allow consequences to come into our lives, we think everything's okay, we think we're fine. We think it's going to go on forever, and just like always, I'll wake up, I'll say I'm sorry, and I'll recover myself and I'll go on with my life. Listen to me right now. The Holy Spirit warns us. The Holy Spirit speaks to us at times and tells us stop. I'm asking you open your ears. Open your eyes. Get woke. What's God saying? Where are you at? How are you living? Righteousness doesn't come by what we do. it comes through Jesus. But God calls us to life and out of death. And it's so easy, man to start walking close to things that produce death and think, we're okay, we're okay. How you doing? How you doing? If God's speaking to your heart right now, don't resist Him. Don't push Him away. Don't say, I'll be okay. Do business right now. Jesus said, while they still call it today, while it's still today, repent. Don't push it away. How you doing? Man, if it's you and God arrests you in your heart right now, you can hear the warning in it and it speaks to you. I'd be remiss just to simply let you walk out the door. If it's you and you need before God to say, Help me, God, I'm going my own way and I'm doing my own thing, and suddenly God opens your eyes and suddenly you hear his voice Stop. Stop. Church, stop. Father, help us. We don't want to go our own way. We don't want to do our own thing. and We don't want to walk into things, God, that produce death in us instead of life. It's your kindness that leads us to repentance so that times of refreshing can come from the very throne room of God. God, we long for refreshing. If there are things that we need to stop and repent of, God, work in us right now. It's an act of mercy and grace to bring us to repentance. God, do it in our lives right now. Do it in our lives right now. If that's you, man, in your heart, just tell the Lord, I need you to do this in me. I'm not telling you to do it. Tell God, do this in me. It's an act of grace that brings us to repentance. Father, hear our prayers right now. And as deadly serious as it is, God, you do it to bring life to us. Father, thank you for life. Thank you for your grace and thank you for your mercy. Thank you for helping us. God, I thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. hey, look at me. If you go to church here, how many times am I in your face? Don't say every week. How many times? It's rare. Agreed? I'm an exhorter and an encourager. Look at me. The words that I just spoke to at the end of this, what you think you control can suddenly turn and control you. That was a word from the Lord when I wrote this message that he gave me. I love you. I'm your pastor. I'm charged before God for your soul. And I'm speaking to you right now with the love of Jesus hear this message, folks. Okay? Thank you.